Welcome to New Life Baptist Preaching, where we grow in relationship, we grow in discipleship, and we grow in Jesus Christ. In this series, we enter a study of the letter to the Hebrews. In this study, we see how Jesus is better. He is the better revelation. He is the better priest. He is the better sacrificed. He is the better king. He brings the better covenant. So we hope that you join us as we grow together and learn more of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Subscribe so that you don't miss a single Lord's Day sermon. And so it is celebratory as we gather in his word. I welcome you to turn to Hebrews chapter four in your copy of God's word this morning. Hebrews chapter four, we're continuing in verses 14 through 16, where our brother Chris left off last week. If you have been with us in our study of Hebrews you will undoubtedly have heard one primary theme that runs throughout, and you've heard it uh, repeated this morning during our catechism time, and that is, if you will join with me, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That has been one theme that we have focused on. We continue in our text in the same vein of thought, but I want to draw out some other elements of what is going on. If it is true that Christ is better, what does that mean other than that there is real risk in looking to lesser things? The writer is saying that Jesus is undoubtedly better, but he's saying so so that you would realize how terrible it is to fall back to lesser things. He's preaching against the danger of apostasy. This is a letter that is written and circulated among the church. There are dangers for us as Christians that we must avoid. We must always turn to Christ. Well, this was the danger for the Hebrews to which the apostle writes. They were prone to turn again to the shadows of the old covenant after having received the fuller and and better revelation of Jesus Christ in these last days, the writer says. They were tempted to look for uh, success, blessing, and even uh, redemption from political sources, kings, defunct intercessors and priesthoods, that only held value in so far as they forecasted and pointed to Christ, to this coming Messiah. But now, He is here. So we are exhorted to look to Christ. Though the coming of Christ is maybe at this season of the year, 
at the forefront of our minds, we recognize that even in this letter, the Christ has already come. The Christ has accomplished uh, his ministry. He is resurrected. He's achieved this exalted place in heaven and achieved salvation that would be extended to all who believe. And even now, as we hear this message preached again to us, he's come and and yet we only wait for his coming again for the grand fulfillment, the climax of what he has achieved, the fruit of his labors. I am convinced it is all the more pertinent that we look to Christ in our day as the day of his return draws near. So if you've had an opportunity to turn to Hebrews 4 and your copy of God's word, I welcome you to stand as we honor the reading of it. Hebrews 4, I will read verses 14 through 16, the end of the chapter. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Our most gracious God and Father, we are those who need you. Lord, we need all of you. We need your word. We need your son. Your word rings true that that we are upheld by the power of your word. Lord, we need him for salvation. We need him for hope in this life that seems so fragile. Lord, we need him for peace where there is instability in our day. We need Him uh, for joy, Lord, where we have no excuse of joy otherwise. And Lord, we need Him in this source of love that we might extend to others that our life be lived to the fullest and more abundantly. God, we need Christ for every breath that we take. And so, Father, each one of us needs the word that you are presenting us this morning. And so, Lord, I ask your protection. Lord, that no one would hear anything uh, clever uh, from my wit. That no one would stumble in the fault of their own understanding, but Lord, this morning that we would encounter you through the risen and living Son of God. Lord, that you would grant each of us wisdom as only by your Spirit. Lord, that we would be satisfied in nothing but Christ alone. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.
you will notice our passage begins with a statement of condition that Christ meets. It's a, a forward-pointing clause. We have seen Christ in His exalted status in who He is and what He does. We've seen some of that impact in, in how we can find rest in Him. And this morning we will see Jesus as high priest. The outline of our text simply goes this way. We, we have this condition that he meets as this high priest that's followed by a command or, a, or an exhortation to the reader. Then we receive another truth concerning Jesus with yet another exhortation to the reader. And then this last imperative, this last exhortation to the reader actually gives further implication concerning Christ, which we may have opportunity to touch on, but that will certainly be covered in the, the following weeks as we continue in this text because uh, I, I may mention again this idea of Jesus as this great high priest is one that we're going to spend a great deal of time on really for the next six chapters week by week diving deeper into all of the implications of Christ as our high priest. So we should grow familiar with the language. This morning as we walk through this, this is the statement. This is the title of the sermon, Jesus High Priest. Since then, we have a great high priest that's in Christ, but we're told he is one who has passed through the heavens. It's true, Jesus is better. As Hebrews, they should already have a view of a high priest. But I want you to see how the writer reminds us of the exalted status of Christ Jesus. If there is to be rest from the works of the law, well then the work of the priesthood must be involved. Their task must have been successfully satisfied. You see, in having all of the law, all of the Word of God, all of His moral and, and standard righteous uh, works that He commands as He reveals His own nature to us, that shows our sin, that, that reveals our need for a mediator, we don't have just this freedom to come in if we've discussed all of this rest and, and these things that have preceded this. I don't want you to forget all that we've covered up to this point. Well, that law, that priesthood must have been satisfied. If it's true that we can come boldly before the throne, well, then we must deal 
with this hurdle, in some ways, of a priesthood. To this we read, Christ has done so in a glorious way. He has passed through the heavenly places. This is something entirely new to any discussion of the priesthood. It's profound. We might say that Jesus serves as a priest in the heavenly places, in that heavenly tabernacle, in that temple not made with human hands. In chapter 8, the writer will argue that the sanctuary serves as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, which is why Moses was given such specific instructions for how he would build the tabernacle. Don't worry, we'll have a chance to preach that later. But that the grand reality is not the tabernacle that is reminiscent in what we're speaking of in Christ, but the grand reality is that Christ is this high priest in the heavenly places and everything before then was only pointing to it. That it was only an imagery. It was only a copy. It was only uh, some, some figment or some, some unfolding portion of what was really taking place. This makes Christ the priest of the heavenly tabernacle the real place of intercession. Well, if this is true, how foolish then would it be to turn again to the priesthood of Aaron? If Christ is the priest that serves in the temple that Moses was trying to remake or to pattern his tabernacle after, how foolish would it be to turn again to the lesser light? How foolish would it be to rely on priests of men in their best temple-like fabrications? How foolish would it be to trust in anyone or go to anyone else as an intercessor besides this Christ? I would like to remind you, Christian, of Romans 8, verses 26 through 27. Likewise, Paul writes, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You have one in the heavenly places that is your intercessor and you need no other if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus is called by name and he is given that title 
which caused the Pharisees to want to try to stone him, knowing that he was being called equal to God. He says that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that is, Jesus, the Son of God. As Son of God, which has become a favorite term, for this writer in Hebrews, calling him son of God. We've heard this repetitiously throughout our series. This shows that Jesus holds the exalted status as the heir to the throne that might only be occupied by God himself. That's your intercessor that we're speaking of. That is your priest the only fitting intercessor. This is what the role of the priest is, is to intercede between God and man. It is to solve the predicament that, that sinful man cannot survive the presence of a holy God. And so they would take their offering to the place for them on their behalf not directly to God because they themselves were sinners. They had to be as men purified. They themselves needed sacrifice. They themselves needed intercession through Moses. And they needed atonement. But this is the work of the priesthood is to intercede. Now friends, I have spoken with sad people who in their desperation have asked for intercession from Mary, from guardian angels, of deceased relatives, saints of old, and even other created beings with this rise of paganism. And, and this is true. They will ask every other one to pray for them, to go for, forward to God on their behalf. Listen to me. Even as we bear one another's burdens in prayer within the church, you must know that the believer is granted this special access to the Father through the Son in a way that does not leave him or her at a distance at all. Christ is the capable high priest because of his supremacy having gone through the heavenly places and because of his exalted status as the son who has fellowship with the father this is the one who brings you in this is the one who's torn the veil who says there is no more you're coming with me Which is why the writer continues. Let 
let us hold fast our confession. Christ is this high priest. And now here's the exhortation if you're following the outline. Here's what you do with that. Hold fast your confession. What is this confession of which he speaks? What's well, true? It's that he is not speaking of the historical confessions of the church that didn't come until later than this was written. However, it also comes against those who count such clear expression of doctrine as useless. The writer here reminds us that there is truth that is common to the faith that we have been handed down from our Lord and Savior through the apostles preserved in His Word that is common to everyone who believes. I want you to hear me out here for a minute. What I fear you heard me say was that there is that which every Baptist believes. What the writer said is that there is a profession that is common to all who believe in this Christ. There is that which makes you a Christian. And it is to that which we hold. It is why it makes important our conversations, our debates, and our warring because there is a confession, there is a word that's been given to us that's right and sure and true. So it's not worthless. It's not haphazard. You don't get to do it your way and I get to do it mine. There is a hint that we might glean from our text. As I mentioned, this topic of Christ as our great high priest, it fills every page through chapter 10 of this book of Hebrews. But this statement, hold fast your confession, even the same Greek word here is used again, sort of bracketing all of this and closing out this grand argument of Christ as our high priest in chapter 10. I would like to read for you a few of those verses. You can jot this down as Hebrews 10, 21 through 25. And since he says we have this great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And he writes, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but engaging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This confession that the writer is speaking of rests 
on the high priestly office of Jesus Christ. You see, he's entering into an argument that Jesus is this great high priest and he's doing so so that you will hold fast the confession so that you won't waver, so that you won't look to a lesser priest, to a lesser office, to a lesser ministry, to anything lesser than Christ himself. This confession acknowledges as much and it produces in us both love and good works. This profession draws together for fellowship and worship with other believers that we might build one another up in this confession as the time of his return draws near. Christian, don't neglect this confession. It is yours in Christ Jesus Study to show yourself approved. Be diligent in his word and the work to which he's called you so that you will be ready when he returns. That's what we're doing. We're building one another up in love and works in light of this grand confession, which is this truth of this fulfillment of the promises of God brought to fruition and completion in Christ alone. Let me take a moment, if I may, and press in a bit. This week, as I contemplated about the day of the Lord, what does it mean to hold this confession and how, how this prepares us for the day? Presumably of His return. I couldn't help but recall the moment of fear in the Garden of Eden, after Adam had sinned. Take yourself back there for a moment. Before there was conversation, before there was rebuke, before there was curse or before there was promise, Adam and Eve feared the coming of the Lord. Can I read you more scripture this morning? Genesis 3.8 records this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. anticipating the coming of a God against whom they had gravely sinned. Do you sense the coming of the Lord at all? Do you think on this? Do you dwell on it? Do you fear God? Do you anticipate this coming of the Lord? Can you feel His impending arrival as the creation that surrounds you groans for His return? In the way that Adam and Eve heard His footsteps.
The day of His coming draws near, and the days of men are increasingly wicked. There is no judge who can more effectively execute His wrath than our God. There is none who are capable of rectifying our plight but Him who is our Redeemer. Friends, as we look on our age, we have gone from fraudulent elections to just this week having congressional staff members being busted for recording their homosexual practices in, within hearing rooms, that is courtrooms at the Capitol. Our day is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. How foolish would Lot have been to suggest to God that if only they had better men in office, kinder kings, or perhaps even if he himself had more time or influence uh, to garner uh, the sway of the public, they would have been spared. No, friends, what we require is the fire of God to fall on the ungodly and we are pressed hard to preach the full law and gospel that some might be redeemed. For His return is near. So we hold fast our confession. The writer turns again to this priesthood. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. His priesthood is eminent and efficient. Eminent, in the way that I'm using it here, entails the nearness of God in Christ Jesus. He has made God accessible and redemption possible. We read that our great high priest is not one who cannot sympathize with our weakness. That is to say, Christ knows our weakness well. He's experienced weakness, hunger, pain, persecution, submission, temptation, and has experienced the plight of our sin as He bore it on the cross. Jesus does not make offering for us in a way that the priests made offering for their poor subjects who were largely unknown to their intercessor. Those priests acquired the benefit of the offering taking their portion as provided in the law. Christ selflessly gave Himself for our benefit. He provided the sacrifice. See the countless times that Christ looked upon His company or the masses and the Scripture says He loved. You see, He's imminent. He is close. He's near. He's not, he's not far away. He's not distant. He's not held uh, away from us by a curtain. 
Your priest in Jesus is near to you and he is sufficient for your sin. He knows the depths of your struggles, though has not sinned. He asked the question, we asked the question earlier about returning to lesser intercessors. Now think for a moment, if you will, on their unworthiness. Any, any of these other intercessors, they themselves have sinned. They themselves were in need of justification. How could they in any lasting effect intercede for the likes of you and the likes of me? Indeed, they cannot. More than this, why would we want to seek the help of another? No one loves you like Jesus does. I want you to listen to the heart of your Savior and of this high priest in what has been called the high priestly prayer. If you'll let me read this to you this morning, coming from John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life. They know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. He even continues in this high priestly office. I don't ask for these only, but also 
for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That's what it sounds like for your Savior to intercede for you. Have you ever heard such a glorious prayer? That had you in it, Christian. Not just them, not just the apostles, not just the ones in, that are in this book, but the ones who would believe because of their word from which we're reading this morning. It's you. It's because of this intercession that the writer can say, let us draw near with confidence. It's that second exhortation. At first it may seem contradictory to you to hear that we come before the throne of grace, which we don't deserve, and yet that we can do so with such confidence. How can that be so? Because of Christ, of course. I want to give you just one more example from the Scriptures this morning. Christ prays for Peter this way in Luke 22.31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I, Christ, have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Do you have any doubt this morning that the prayer of Christ is what sustained Peter? You know, Judas was grieved by his sin. But he was not repentant of it. In his selfish misery, he killed himself. Peter was sustained. He was not overcome. Christ interceded on his behalf so that his faith would return and he would strengthen the brothers. The prayer of the faithful availeth much. Amen. Well, how about the prayers of the Son? of the most righteous, 
Surely the prayers of Christ avail all the more. Did you hear Christ in John 17? He said, I pray not just for these, but for those who will believe because of their word. Listen, the prayers of any of deceased relatives, of, of, of angels, of saints, of Mary, of anyone. They're worthless. But oh, to have the prayers of our Christ, who's the first fruit of the living, of the resurrected. Believer, you are in good hands. Doesn't this give you confidence this morning? Doesn't this encourage you? You might come before the throne of grace and say, God, you remember me. I am the one that Christ mentioned to you. I am the one that he prayed for whenever he asked, Lord, not just these, but the ones who will believe because of this word. I'm the one that he's made provision for. Christ is your intercessor, Christian. You have a representative in the Son. You can come confidently before the throne. And I want to say this. Just in preparation of what will follow, I want you to pay special attention to the language here. This will become more important to our study in the coming weeks. He moves from a priest language to king language. He is this great high priest, but he moves to our coming before the throne of grace to find grace, mercy in our time of need. You see, priests of old were not seated on any throne. They were the givers of sacrifice, but they were not the receivers of the sacrifice. Yet here we read Christ is the priest we know He is the sacrifice. But He is also one with Him to whom the sacrifice is made. Think on that. Can't you wait to hear more about this priest king next week? This one that is interceding on your behalf. So I invite you to learn more of this glorious Christ that we have received. But for that, you'll have to come next week. Lord, we are so thankful that what we receive in your word this morning and in this book of Hebrews is victorious. Lord, to know that we have both a priest and a king. 
who dispenses to us great grace and mercy. Father, we yearn to learn more of this King and intercessor. Lord, we pray that you grow our appetites for our Savior. Lord, we pray that you would draw us with joy again to your word. Lord, that we would be contagious in our hope as we deal with our families. Lord, even as we interpret and navigate the wicked world that surrounds us. Father, we come to You. And we ask that You would glorify Yourself in the full week that we have of rejoicing and singing hymns together. Even this week to our shut-ins, bringing hope and bringing joy that all comes as a result of this intercession that you have provided in the one God-man, Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, let us relish in the fact that our name is spoken on the lips of our high priest in heaven who ministers in the heavenly places. God, we ask that You draw us near. As we draw near to You in worship and praise and in celebration this Christmas season. It is in His precious name that we pray the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us at New Life Baptist Preaching. We hope that you join us each Lord's Day in this study of the letter of Hebrews where we learn Jesus is better. Remember to subscribe so that you don't miss any sermon.